0: Good morning, Mars Hill family. This morning we are reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of God for God's people. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. You want to know why I keep working at this church? It's because of people. I think of those who are serving us this morning, the Smiths, and the number of folks I've been trading texts and phone calls with over the past handful of days who are just trying to stumble along through life. I'm uh, so grateful to be part of this place. My name is Troy, one of the pastors here. Grateful uh, to be able to share a little bit this morning. I too want to say I hope you had a good Thanksgiving and a um, Happy Christian New Year today as we start the season of Advent. Um, on Thursday, we celebrated Thanksgiving with my mother-in-law. She moved in with us during this new round of COVID restrictions, and uh, we were near the end of the meal when she remembered that there were rolls warming up in the oven. And then as she was placing one of them on our plates, she started telling uh, my wife and I that these rolls were not going to be very good. Um, And then Liz and Jane and I started to have uh, the briefest of conversations about the function of the roll in the Thanksgiving meal, basically the role of the roll. I need the drums right now so bad for that rim shot. Um, and our shared opinion is something like this. We're less concerned about the roll and much more concerned about the gravy. In fact, good or bad, the roll is simply a delivery system for that gravy. Can I get a witness? He says to five people who are live here with us. I think that uh, for some people, they would extend... We can probably take a picture of the gravy down, probably, right? I don't want to tempt anybody. I think for many people, this perspective about gravy and rolls might be extended uh, to the season of Advent. Because many of us are less concerned about this season and more about Christmas. In fact, we might understand and perceive that Advent is simply a delivery system for Christmas. And I wanna begin today by stressing that Advent is not merely a four-week runway for Christmas, but that Advent has liturgical and formational significance and value all on its own, separate from Christmas altogether. One of the key things that Advent forms in us, and frankly, one of the things that Advent requires of us, is the ability to see and understand our Christian faith from multiple perspectives past, present, and future. Now, the past makes a lot of sense for us, particularly in this season, because we remember that Jesus, the Word made flesh, was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. We retell this story in our sermons and in our songs every year. And we have a pretty decent grasp about the present. Understanding, even if it's mysterious, that Jesus is somehow present with us in the word, in the sacraments, whenever two or three are gathered together in his name. But where most modern Christians place less emphasis is on this future orientation, this future perspective, this eventual, fully realized rule and reign of Jesus the King upon his second coming. And that future orientation, that is the predominant spirit and emphasis of Advent. This is a season of longing and waiting for the promised return of Jesus, for the fully realized reality of a recreated, restored creation. Now, Advent in this season, we, we have to face what Fleming Rutledge helpfully calls the time between. In her really good book on Advent, she writes this The people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable of Bethlehem, and his second coming in glory, to judge the living and the dead, affirming that line from the Apostles' Creed. And then she continues, the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterizes life in the present world, that is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. That Advent tension. Tension. You potentially know what I'm talking about. Particularly, I would say, when we sing some songs during this season. Oh come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set your people free. Here's a verse we often skip in a little town of Bethlehem. It ends this way. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Around here, there's a a more modern song written by my friend Ryan Flanagan that we sing, and it says, hallelujah, Christ is coming. Lord, we wait for you. Are these songs, are they pointing backward? Or are they pointing forward? Or are they talking about right now? Are these about what happened Are they about what is happening? Are they about what will happen one day? And this is the Advent tension because it's all of them. And that's really tough to navigate. It's tough to understand how all of these can be true at the same time. I say all of this because our Advent series, this For Unto Us series, is going to require that we face this Advent tension. We're going to be focusing on this one passage for the next four Sundays and on Christmas Eve. And as we encounter this text, we are in this time between. And we understand that it's both pointing backward and it's pointing forward at the exact same time. So we'll be rooted in Isaiah for this Advent season. And the author is writing about 800 years before Jesus is born. And the promise given in these verses, it comes to Israel when they're in a really bad way. There's a foreign invasion happening. And this passage is speaking directly to the people's longing and to looking forward. And that's the invitation of Advent, to join that longing for a fully realized future. Because we live in an already not yet reality. We understand that all of human history has been transformed by the birth of Jesus and yet things are not how they should be. Things are not how we want them to be. And so as we look at these verses in Isaiah, each Sunday we're going to focus on one of the names, one of the titles that we find in verse six. And we're going to begin today with the first of those titles, Wonderful Counselor. Now, I think you're going to want a Bible. At the very least, you're going to want something to write down um, some of these verses because I'm going to highlight tons of Bible passages today. Um, And I'm, I'm really excited to, in many ways, let the Bible speak for itself as we look at this title, Wonderful Counselor. When we read these verses, we understand that they are interpreted as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so to better understand Wonderful Counselor, this first title, I'm gonna kind of put things in three buckets. Who, how, and what. So let's begin with this first bucket, who. Now, there is some debate about this first title. And particularly the, the debate is about the placement of commas, everyone's favorite debate topic. Some language experts, they believe that there aren't four names in verse six, but there are five. And that there should be a comma between wonderful and counselor, claiming that these are two different titles. I think it's really compelling. I, um, I, I'm not smart enough to debate whether it's right or wrong. But today, I'm going to go ahead and combine these two words together into a single title. Just for transparency's sake, I'm going to do that. I don't think we lose too much in meaning. I don't think we lose too much in impact. So we're going to talk about Wonderful Counselor. It's the only time in the Bible that this title is used. And the word wonderful, in Hebrew, it looks like this. And the word is Pele. And its connotation is miraculous or astonishing, incomprehensible. It's the same word that we find in Psalm 139 when David writes this, such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. We see it show up again in everyone's favorite devotional book, Judges. This wonderful scene where Samson's parents, they encounter an angel of the Lord and they ask the angel, what is your name? And the angel says back, why do you ask my name? It's beyond understanding. And most of us, if we're using an NIV, a TNIV Bible, there's a little footnote and you look at the bottom at the small, small words and it says, you can read it like this, why do you ask my name? It is Wonderful. So this word wonderful, it's stressing that something lies outside of the realm of human explanation. Something here is separate from the normal course of events. It's a richer word than the way that we typically use wonderful. And I think it's a challenging word, especially for contemporary people. It seems there's not much that we can't know or explain, or understand. I mean, we have Wikipedia. I can ask Siri or Alexa anything I want. How is it possible that anything is beyond being known or understood? And when you talk about miraculous, it's even harder to understand. It's harder to swallow. I think for most of us, our best association for a miracle is an unlikely come-from-behind Olympic hockey game. So this first word, it forces us to sit up and to take stock. Do you realize that we're dealing with someone beyond our imagining? Someone who operates outside of the normal realms of our understanding. Who operates outside of the normal course of events. So when we talk about who is this wonderful counselor, what we're stressing here is that he is unique. And it emphasizes one of the foundational beliefs of our Christian faith, that Jesus is fully human, yes, but unlike any other human in every other way because he is also fully God, unique. Just two chapters later, Isaiah foretelling Jesus again says these words that the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Notice that word rest. This counselor will not simply have a good insight every so often, rather, he will be covered in this spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit will descend and remain there. This should remind us of Jesus's baptism when the dove descends and rests on him. In the book of Proverbs, the teacher also interpreted, understood as being embodied by Jesus. The teacher says this, counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have power. I have insight. There's an Ownership communicated here. Not simply having a good idea now and then, but possessing all of it. That wonderful spot in 139 that again brings comfort to so many of us. You know these words. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. We just sang some of these. From the moment when I wake up to the moment when I lie down. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. This is a kind of all-encompassing understanding unique to Jesus. Fast forward to his earthly life. In Luke 2, we find a young Jesus making a splash in the temple, listening to the teachers, asking questions. And verse 47 of chapter 2 says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, his uniqueness established at a very early age. Matthew 13, Jesus comes to his hometown and all the people are amazed. Where did this man get wisdom? And they ask, isn't Isn't he the carpenter's son? They're confused because he seems normal in every way. He couldn't possibly be unique or special and yet they couldn't deny his wisdom. They couldn't deny the miracles. John writes these really insightful words at the end of chapter two of his gospel. He said that Jesus knew all people. He knew what was in them. Seems to echo those words written so long ago by David in Psalm 139. And then finally in Colossians, talking about Jesus, who is the mystery of God. Paul says this about Christ. In him all is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul loves the word all in the book of Colossians, communicating totality and completeness. And here including all of wisdom and all of knowledge hidden in the person of Jesus. So according to the Bible, this counselor is unlike any other that we could imagine. Deserves to be called wonderful, miraculous, beyond our comprehension. Let's turn to how. The Bible describes this counselor as one who gives generously. This is not some stingy counselor who is protective of information, who's, who's tough to track down, not someone who requires a monthly subscription or a Patreon kind of status in order to get exclusive and valuable stuff. In Proverbs 2, we see that the one who really wants wisdom, the person who calls out for insight and for understanding, that the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. A few verses later is this wonderful promise that wisdom will enter your heart. Here's a verse that I'm working on committing to memory. Psalm 32, verse eight. Here's, uh, here's what it's like in the TNIV. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go in this detail. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. is Beautiful that last detail, that's generosity. It's not simply I'll tell you where you should go, but I will watch over you. Just amazing. It's beautiful in the New Living Translation too. It says it this way in New Living Translation, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. The best pathway, not simply a good pathway, not an okay, not a, not a decent pathway, but the best pathway. That's the spirit of generosity. There's this really beautiful spot in John's gospel that we haven't got to yet. We'll get to in our Messiah series come in January. But in chapter 14, Jesus promises to his disciples the Holy Spirit. And then by extension, the promise is extended to us, this promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says that the Father will give the advocate. In some translations, it's the counselor. And he says this, that this advocate, this counselor is to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. This won't simply be a one-time visitation and every now and then sort of encounter, but an indwelling presence with you forever. Forever. A few verses later, we read um, that this counselor will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Did you catch it? will teach you all things. Could that possibly be true? I mean, we know from Colossians 2 that Christ holds all knowledge. But here it seems that all things are available to us through the advocate. Really, could that be true? What generosity. And maybe in the most plain spoken language of all, the book of James, it writes to any of us who lack wisdom with these words, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you what a beautiful picture we get from the bible this generosity it confronts the ways that i approach god maybe you too because i feel like i can often have an apologetic posture worried that i'm being too needy wondering if god's patience will finally run out with all of my asking i mean i i already asked for daily bread <laughs> And I ask for my sins to be forgiven. Can I really ask now for strength? And then in a little while for self-control? And then a little while after that for wisdom? And on and on and on. Friends, be encouraged. The Bible gives us such good news. Evidently, we can ask and ask and ask. Because this wonderful counselor is generous. and Finally, let's turn to what. What comes from this wonderful counselor? And when we look to the Bible, we find that this counselor reveals God. Jesus very specifically redirects all of our attentions and all of our affections to God, not simply to good ideas, not simply to helpful insights. Jesus doesn't function as some kind of heavenly self-help section. He directs and rev- us to and reveals to us God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right at the end in verse 30, he says, Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. So the word, it was made flesh so that we can come to know who God is, what God is like. And then that word is given himself for us. That Colossians text that we've looked at already, it emphasizes that the mystery of God is revealed in Jesus. And at the very beginning of John's gospel, he writes this, that Jesus is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. That's what the son does. That's what the wonderful counselor does. He reveals the father. In the words of my favorite early Christian, the golden mouth, John Chrysostom, he wrote this, he said this, the son of God is said to be the wonderful counselor because of his many other teachings, but especially because he revealed his father to humankind. That's what he does. And yet, here is the advent tension to all of this. We realize that we only see through a glass darkly, as Paul wrote. First Corinthians 13, he tells us that he emphasizes that we only know in part. But one day we shall see face to face. One day we will fully know, even as we are fully known. And that's the fully realized ministry of this wonderful counselor. And that's what we long for. For the full riches of complete understanding that awaits us when Christ returns again. But even in part, I can't help but get swept up in this picture of the wonderful counselor. Every sermon Either I'm one that I'm listening to or one that I'm putting together. I have in my mind a couple of um, finish lines. I hope that every sermon lands in two places. In doxology and in praxis. What I long for is a sermon to well up inside of me worship. Worship. That it would make me want to say something to God about who God is. And it will well up inside of me a desire to live in a particular kind of way. To embody specific practices. And so uh, I hope this does that as well. I've asked Elwin to come and help. And we're just going to practice a little doxology. A little worship in response to this wonderful counselor. Because the uniqueness of Jesus brings me to adoration. The generosity of this wonderful counselor, it wells up inside of me deep thanksgiving. And as the revelation of God, it brings me to a kind of silent abiding eager to pay attention and to see more of who God is. Right now in the formation school, the cohort that's moving through the formation school, the practice, the discipline they are practicing right now is silence. A very appropriate discipline and practice and response during this Advent season. But I'm also compelled to act, to I'm compelled to deeper trust and dependence. I'm compelled to ask God more regularly for what I need and for what I lack. And also to be drawn more into this great story, to read the Bible more often and to look for God to be revealed, to listen for the voice of the advocate in these sacred words. But for now, let's let's practice just a little doxology. I'm just gonna lead us to pray simple little prayers give a little space for you and then we'll just sing a bit of a refrain and so taking our cues from the writer of the book of Hebrews let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need and let's pray together we celebrate the uniqueness of this counselor appropriately called wonderful you are more than we could ask or imagine you deserve our worship and our adoration lord there is none like you
0: For all eternity alone, and find there is none like you.
1: We thank you, counselor, for your generosity towards us. As we sang earlier, all our life you have been so good given us more than we could ask or imagine. You are worthy, God, of our thanks and our praise.
0: Because you are good
1: And we are humbled as we see more of who you are, Counselor. Thank you, Spirit, for giving us eyes to see. Thank you, Jesus, for displaying the heart of the Father. Fill us even more with wonder, with awe, and with thanksgiving.
0: There is no one like you, there is none beside you.
1: Toxologies.